Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Weird One Podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like Weird One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything Weird One, you can go to weareoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. thought we would do something kind of unique. I've never done this in this way. I have never really preached apologetics before. I guess I have, but I've never done it in this way where I want to not have necessarily us right now take a test, but I want to have Jesus take a test. And it's a test that he's very willing to take, and I want to explain why. And this is really, really important out of the gate that you understand what we're doing. Because if we have him take this test with the wrong heart, then it is sin. Okay? So let me give you, I want to give you two indicators here of of what I mean kind of in Scripture you can unpack. Number one in Scripture, in Luke chapter 4, it indicates a time where Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert. If you know this story, for 40 days, Jesus hasn't eaten anything, drank anything. He's in the desert. He's been tempted by the devil. And there's a bunch of kind of like series of moments of tempting where he's throwing it at him. And he finally takes him up to the highest point of the temple. And he says, throw yourself off of this because you can command the angels to catch you, to save you. And this is Jesus' response in Luke 4, verse 12. Jesus answered, it is said, meaning it is written, like the Old Testament, he's quoting a prophecy right now. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, I, sorry. I just said we were going to do that tonight. I said we're going to put Jesus to the test. So I don't want to make this confusing for you, but some of you in your heart, if you don't have this right out of the gate, this message does not work for you. The next three hours that I'm about to preach tonight, does not work for you. Some of you are like, is he serious? I might be. We'll just see. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, there's one instance. Let me give you another. Because God actually does invite us to test, but you have to understand the difference of how we approach this. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, God said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, look at this, and put me to the test. So Luke 4 says, do not test God, and Malachi 3 says, test God. Oh, the Bible must have contradictions, doesn't it? And put me to the test now, and this says the Lord of armies, if I do not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. See, what the Bible is showing us here and that some of you need to grasp in your heart tonight, is that there is a difference between a test that is rooted in unbelief and a test that is rooted in faith. There is a difference in a test when we test the Lord that's rooted in obedience to want to get closer, to want to follow him, to want to know him, to want to have greater faith, and one that is simply a test of unbelief. A test of unbelief is not acceptable to him. It's sin. This is why Jesus says, do not test your, the Lord your God. 
The word test in Luke 4, when Satan does it, test literally translates tempt. He's saying, do not tempt God. Don't even, don't even come uh, at your faith at Jesus in a way that many of you, it's almost like you think that you're leaning into him maybe by being here, but how many of you, you're in the room, but you're kind of in the room like this the whole time. See, Malachi 3, this word here, uh, test, translates examine. Think about when we were, we were kids. I mean, maybe some of you do, do this now. No worries. And you get at a magnifying glass, and there's a bug, and you get cold. I'm not saying like burning the bug alive. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about like examining it. That's fun too, though. I want you to look at it like this idea that you got the magnifying glass, and you're leaning in to see it better. Like this is Jesus. We're examining Jesus. We're going to tonight examine the evidence. PT, in the first message, he covered why God? I thought tonight we'd talk about why Jesus. Pastor Steve then is going to wrap it. Why Christianity? Why do we do all this singing? Like why, like why are we live in this life? Is, is it worth it? But really we obviously can't say why Christianity is important if we don't know why Jesus is important. Did he actually exist? Is this all real? Like is it, is it, is it a, fade up, um, a made up fable, a story? And here's what some of you are doing. Here's the problem. The problem is that some of you have been unwilling to test God. And I, I really think this, if you'd be willing to test him with a heart of faith, you would find that everything the Bible has to lay out. Guys, I'm going to hit archaeology tonight. I'm going to hit history. I'm going to talk about things. Honestly, that is like, it's a lot. It's not stuff I usually like study or talk about. I'm about to hurt your brain with so much information tonight. I apologize in advance. But we have to put Jesus to the test. Here's the difference between what I'm going to do and maybe what some of you might do that I'd like to clarify out of the gate. I got the magnifying glass out. I got the microscope out. I'm leaning into Jesus. See, in, Ma in uh, Luke 4, when Jesus was being tested, tempted by the devil, temptation lures you away. I was playing uh, this game with y'all this afternoon, traffic jam. And when it would say green light, everybody's moving, and red light, everybody would stop. And we were walking around with tokens that everybody gets at collision. And I'd put the token in front of people, and multiple people frozen, knowing the rules. When it's red light, you can't move. They couldn't help it. When they saw the token, even when they couldn't move, they reached. And they'd get out simply because they reached. Why? Temptation has this thing about luring you away from what is the objective. Luring you away from the life you've been called to live. Luring you away from Jesus. Some of you, you can test God tonight, and the way you can do it is we're going to take out the magnifying glass, and we're going to examine and lean in. Some of you, if you don't heed what I'm saying, you're not leaning in. You're being lured away. There's a difference. So we're going to put Jesus to the test. And we're going to do it in a bunch of different ways. I'm going to break down tonight. Why Jesus? 
Why is the story of Jesus, this God we serve Jesus, why is it Jesus and only Jesus? Why have I been serving Jesus since I was four years old for 31 years? Why have I dedicated my entire life to preach his gospel? Why are we at Collision this weekend? Can I tell you, it's not for you to play games. It's, be, it's be, because I want you to encounter Jesus. Why Jesus? Are you ready? You ready to lean in? It's going to be like three, four hours. I like did you bring an energy drink with you? Good. Crack that sucker when you sit down because we're about to lean in. Let's pray. Jesus, we're leaning in tonight. My heart is leaning into you tonight. I want you. I can't pray that for you. You got to pray. I can only pray for me. I want you. I want to know you in a deep way. Reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself through your word, through your presence tonight, God. I want a fresh revelation and encounter with Jesus Christ tonight. And I pray and believe that for every single person under the sound of my voice. If they would call on the name of the Lord Jesus, they will be saved. We declare that. We thank you that you came and you died and you rose again. And tonight we get to talk about it because that's why we're here. We are here entering a holy collision with you, Jesus, because we know anybody that came face to face with you, they were never the same afterwards. So change us from the inside out. Help us to be more like you. We love you and we give you the highest praise. In Jesus' name, everybody says amen. Okay, let's lean in. We're going to get it. Let's get it. You can give one high five and then grab your seat. Just one person, give them a high five. We're going to get it. Let's get it, get it, get it. Okay. Why don't you just quickly uh, touch the person next to you real quick. Touch them on the shoulder real quick. Tell them that you're ready to lean in. Say, I know I'm sitting now. Hey, let's just practice it. Will you do that for a second? Take your body, I want you to physically lean in like this. Physically lean forward. See how that looks? That's what we're going to do. We're going to do with our hearts. Okay, you ready? If you're taking notes, this message is called the Jesus test. Because that's what we're going to do with him tonight. We're going to put him to the test. Is this Jesus worth living for? Let's see. Let's see. You decide. I am going to give Jesus four tests that he has to take tonight. Four different tests. He has to pass each test if he is going to be Jesus Christ. He has to pass them. You ready? So test number one, if you're taking notes, test number one is the historical test. We have to ask this first question with the historical test, 
Write this question down as we answer it. Did Jesus live? Can we, can we prove it? Can we bring enough evidence, enough proofs forward, not that just simply the Bible says it out of the gate and we just believe it, or not simply because a pastor told you it or your mama told you it, or whatever it is. We got to put Jesus to the test. Did he live? Uh, for me, we're talking historical uh, findings. That is not my, that's not my cup of tea. Any history buffs in the room? You like history? Okay. Very few. There's a reason. I've never been good at history. I remember uh, my 10th grade year, I was in U.S. history with Mr. Demas. And if you've been to Emily City High School, you might know Mr. Demas. Yikes. Uh, so I'll never forget. I'm pretty sure it was like a World War II like lecture, whatever they call it. I can't remember in school. And uh, he was like showing a film and stuff. And we had to get up and pretend like we're in the army. And it was really hard because I just am not. And so he had us put on like these fake helmets and stuff. And we're all standing in line. And we had to like, you know, tent hut or whatever. And salute or I don't know. I'm not doing it right. Never done it. And so I was just just messing around the whole time, not taking it seriously. It was very hard to take serious. Like I was trying, but I was not doing a good job. I'll never forget though. He pulls me out of the classroom and uh, <laughs> he shuts the door. You know, that's where the class is like, ooh, you know, and, you know, and then you don't want to like look scared. You're like scared to death, but you're like, I'll see you later. I'll be back. You know, like you you go out, and I'll never forget. He looks at me, and he, he goes, I just want to remind you that I'm in charge of this classroom. And I was like, I just want to remind you, if you have to remind me you're in charge, you're clearly not in charge. No, I didn't say that, but I did say it in my head. Did you ever say some good stuff in your head? You're just smart enough to not say it from your mouth, okay? I've never, I've, I've never really loved history. I, as I've come to love the Bible, though, I've found that I have to come to love the history of it, but I personally have struggled with it, struggled knowing how to lean into it. But if we're going to prove Jesus, begin to establish evidence for Jesus, did he live, then we're going to have to provide enough evidence. What you call it is, uh, Pastor Teller actually referred to this word in his message, it's called historicity is the word. It's on the screen. Historicity is historical authenticity. It's not just like random historical things that possibly could have happened. It's like they've been evidenced and reliably proven enough with enough facts, not just we call the word of God truth, but enough facts that it's an authentic finding of evidence. So what we're trying to do when we talk about the historicity is we have to ask the question in order to prove whether or not Jesus lived, we have to prove is the Gospels reliable? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books of the New Testament, we have to ask the question, are the Gospels reliable? In order to show the authenticity of any document in history, you're going to have manuscripts. So today in your Bibles, translated to English and all of that and printed nice or digitally on an app or whatever it is, it came from originally what was known as manuscripts. 
you have to have manuscripts that can prove the original document existed. From that, then, we have to break down authenticity. Let me show you what everybody leans into as the greatest of all what we'd call in the Christian world secular works when it comes to the historicity and the reliability based upon manuscripts, it would be the Iliad by Homer. How many of you have ever even heard of the Iliad by Homer? Okay, en enough of you, a number of you. So if you were to break this down, there are 650 Greek manuscripts. That is like a ton. There's other works by a lot of different people. They're either lost and they were at one point they said they existed or they have like five of them or some have one of them or they have this volume where there's one and then the next volume it's like they're missing one or whatever. It's like so 650 is a ton. That's why the Iliad by Homer is, is a huge work uh, in terms of uh, uh, a, a, a work of literature in our world today. Can I just make sure you understand this out of the gate? When we're going to talk about the historical Jesus, and we're going to lean into what's referred to as the historicity of the Bible, if, if the Iliad by Homer has 650, you need to understand that the Bible, it has 5,664 Greek manuscripts. Greek is what the New Testament was written in, so the New Testament. There's many more when you talk about the whole Bible. But we're talking about full manuscripts all saying the same exact thing. If the Iliad by Homer only has 650 and it's known as this reliable work and, and everybody leans into it and many of you know of it and it's been in classrooms and all that, then I'm just confused. Why is not the greatest work on planet Earth? The Bible. It's the number one seller. You know the two things you got to know? It's the number one sold book in the world every year and it's the number one stolen book in the world every year. You know that? 5,664 Greek manuscripts. This right here, understanding this, is what shows us the reliability and the historicity, right? The historical authenticity of the Bible. Can we trust it? Is there error to it? You would find that if you look at the manuscripts, there isn't. It was referenced in one of our sessions earlier. It might have been a misspelled word, maybe a misplaced comma, something of that nature. But it's, it's an authentic work. But let's just, let's just lean away from that for a little bit. Let's just say let's throw the manuscripts, maybe not out the window, let's set them aside here for a second, to not use those as the only thing to help us prove the life of Jesus that walked the earth. But what about people, historians of his time? They either walked with him, or in the years around, they were documenting his life. There's two famous ones, uh, Tactius and Josephus. Josephus, I, I wanted you to understand this because I'm going to refer reference a couple things that are secular in nature, even atheistic in nature. You understand this. Josephus is not a Christian. He's a Jewish historian. You understand? That means he wasn't about Jesus. He wasn't about the Christian life. He wasn't on board with it, but as a historian, he had to appropriately document it or he couldn't call himself a historian. He had to write down the facts and what actually happened and what was actually true or he couldn't call himself a historian. So his documentation is what corroborates would be the word, is what plays together with exactly what the New Testament says. Let me read you what he wrote. This is just quote for quote what Josephus says. He said, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man if indeed one ought to call him a man. He's like, I, I don't even know what to call him. For he was one who wrought surprising feats 
and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. That's a huge word to use. That means the Messiah, the deliverer, the one that was said, that said was coming. He goes, he was the Christ. And when Pilate, so now he's documenting that Jesus stood before Pilate. Upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, the Pharisees he's referring to, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him. So he's saying people that at one point, literally everything the Bible says, he's literally reiterating in history. People that at once followed him and said, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest with their palm branches when he came in on a donkey. They're now yelling, crucify him, crucify him. He's literally redocumenting that right here. Who once had come to love him, did not give up their affection for him. And on the third day, he appeared to them, restored to life for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Oh, man, I love that. Has still to this day not disappeared. We still out here. Still to this day. See, he didn't realize he was writing something prophetic in nature because this is really old. This is, this is historical work that he wrote here. So here we are in 2023. Still to this day, we've not disappeared. Some people, they tried to argue whether or not Jesus actually lived. I just gave you a Jewish historian, but can I tell you, secular historians as well, ones that they are completely against Jesus, aren't going to follow Jesus anyway. They will tell you. They agree Jesus was a historical figure. The historical test. What about archaeology? Archaeology is really important to prove the existence of things. That's why we have fossils and all these different things. We try to prove dinosaurs and all of that, right? See, some, they argue that there's no archaeological evidence to prove Jesus. Let me give you an example. Uh, John chapter 5 Jesus comes to what's referred to as the pool of Bethesda. There's a man there. He's referred to as an invalid or like a lame man. He's, he's like disabled from a, an illness, a sickness. And Jesus has walked up to him because the man was there because he thought, if I can get in the pool, maybe I can get healed from that water. It was like something they believed at that time. But Jesus walks up. He goes, hey, pick up your mat. You don't need that anymore. Get out of here. He's healed. John, when he records this, he writes that in at that pool, there are five, it's what's referred to as porticos, entryways to the pool of Bethesda. Many people have argued for a long time that this is not accurate, and John has an error in this because they have not been able to find this or prove this because we're talking about this is in Jerusalem. And we can't find it anywhere. So they thought for sure John must have error in his writings. But recently, 40 feet under the ground, they just excavated the pool of Bethesda. Do you know what it had? Five porticos, exactly as John listed in chapter 5. See, if, if archaeology can be used to help us begin to find evidence that what Jesus referred to, or at least the locations it was documented he was walking in, then I wonder if those things are true, could we also begin to lean into the things that he said can be true as well. Meaning, he is, he was, he always will be who he says he is.
Archaeology, history, all of it is pointing to help us make a proof of Jesus. The second test, though, we gotta, we got to just keep putting them. I said there's four. The second test is the divinity test. Now, the divinity test is important because we might be able to maybe prove, based upon the historicity, the reliability of the Bible with the manuscripts and the archaeology and all these things, that Jesus, the historical Jesus, the figure Jesus, that he did walk the earth. But what about what he did have to say? Anybody know what he had to say? He made claims. He made big statements when he walked the earth. Can we prove his divinity? It is very important for us to lean into this idea of proving his divinity. When I say divinity, what I'm saying is, uh, is Jesus God? It is he just a great dude? Because Josephus says, a wise man, I guess if you can even call him a man. But he didn't say he was God. He documented he was here, but he didn't document he was God. So how do we lean into whether or not he's God? So what we have to do is we have to take the historical accounts, the archaeological findings, and the historicity of the Bible. Are we with me? I'm not trying to use big words. I'm just trying to use the right words. We have to use those to be able to unpack whether or not he's God. So this is where you go. If the Bible proves the historical Jesus, that's an authentic work. It's a 5,664 manuscripted documented work. Then if that is accurate, can we now use that as a frame of reference that when archaeology proves what is listed in the Bible as the Pool of Bethesda or a lot of different areas, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, all these different things, right? Golgotha, the place of the skull where he died. Could we also now use it as a frame of reference to be able to lean into his divinity? Is Jesus God? In Mark chapter 2, Jesus enters into Capernaum, the city of Capernaum. And he comes back home, and you have to realize that anytime Jesus comes around, people flocked. Like people from all over, they're coming, they got to see him because he was working miracles. He didn't just preach like anybody. He, the Bible says that he spoke like one with authority. And so like, we want to hear this dude. He, like, they were just drawn to his magnetic. So anywhere he'd go, it packed the place out. So he's in this home and it's so packed with people, you cannot get in. You can't even get close enough to be able to hear him speak. So it records in Mark chapter 2 that there was four men who had a good buddy of theirs and a stretcher some sort of device to carry, let's say, and he was paralyzed. That they're bringing him towards Jesus because they want to see their friend healed, but there's no way for them to get in. Do you know how this story goes? They end up getting on the roof like any normal person would. I'm, I'm trying to imagine how they got their friend up there. Did they just like throw a rope around him and they're just like pulling him up? Like how did this transpire exactly? But they get up on the roof and then... As any, I don't know, great neighbors would, they cut a hole in their, in their neighbor's roof. And they cut a big hole in it, the Bible says, and they drop this man down to Jesus. Why? Because they had such faith. They, they'd heard of his miracles. They just believed if Jesus could get his hand, get his voice, be just in the presence of our friend, he would be healed. He wouldn't be paralyzed anymore. 
The thing I've learned about Jesus is he never just stops at average or ordinary or simple. He always takes it to the next level. See, his divinity, I believe, could be proven alone just through his miracles. But that ain't enough. See, Jesus did not come to perform miracles just to help a couple people in their physical bodies be healed. A physical body that although if I was healed at this age, I eventually am going to get old and die. So it doesn't matter in the long run. Jesus didn't just come to show off with a couple things to people. Jesus took it a step further. What does it say? In Mark chapter 2, verse 5, not just a healing of a miracle, but when Jesus saw their faith, these four friends, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Check that in. Your sins are forgiven. He ain't just stopping with a physical miracle. He wants to get to the heart. Your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. We'll get back to that word in a second. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Only God can forgive sins. Okay, so if only God can forgive sins, then could we start with this thought that Jesus is God? That if he's speaking in this way, that he is willing to forgive your sins. Think about the woman caught in the sin of adultery. Go and sin no more. Over and over and over, he speaks to people. He goes, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus had the power to forgive sins because he is God. C.S. Lewis, famous theologian, P.T., I believe, referenced it in his message as well, wrote a book, Mere Christianity. It is a mind twister of a book. Maybe not for Pastor Tyler and Pastor Steve, but it is for me, but he has a great thought in this idea that Jesus is God. Check this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I Meaning there's this one statement that people always say, and he's like, it's stupid. So let me just speak to what he's saying. People say, he's, this was saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. People say this all the time. It's like, yeah, I believe Jesus lived, and uh, he was a good guy, you know, and like, whatever, he was probably nice to people, but I don't believe he's God. Like, that's a statement people make. So C.F. Lewis, he's like, I'm going to speak to this. That is the one thing we must not say. He's like, basically, if you say that, you're dumb. This is why. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, he would not be a great moral teacher. You don't do that. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. He's saying the way that Jesus talked, walking around the things he claimed, forgiving people of sin, Good moral teachers don't do those things. He was either a complete lunatic, which let me just speak to that for a second, 
read the scriptures, Jesus had normal human emotions just like us. Crazy people don't. People that are literally not right in the mind, they don't have consistent emotions. We are actually supposed to experience happiness and also sorrow. Jesus did. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in all the Bible. We are ex- supposed to experience uh, pain and agony, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane where we just like are hurting over things, right? But we're also supposed to experience passion. You know, the Bible actually says that he went in with a whip into the temple. Anger. The difference is because as we are making this case that he is God, it's called holy, righteous anger. He went in the midst of sin, and he came against it. We're supposed to, you know, this movie that's just popped off, right? Sound of Freedom. We are supposed to have a holy, righteous anger and say, you know what? It is not okay to see sex trafficking in this generation. Like, we're actually supposed to get ticked about that. We're supposed to get real upset about it. It's an emotion that God placed inside of us to do something with. See, if Jesus was a lunatic, he wouldn't have had all these different emotions that we have as human beings. If he wasn't a lunatic, is it possible that maybe he was a liar? Yet everywhere he went, he told the truth. He even was willing to say outlandish things that people would think would be outlandish, where he goes, hey, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. I can't lie to you about it. Just because it's hard for you to receive doesn't mean I should have to lie. Is there a category that we're missing? He's either lunatic, he is liar, or is it possible that he's Lord? He's not a madman. He's not the devil of hell. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's Lord. He is God. And can I tell you, he's not just God. C.S. Lewis just said this here. The Apostle John breaks this down. Famous scripture we know, John 3.16. He's not just God, but for God so loved the world that he gave who? His one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He's not just God. You need to know this. Jesus is the Son of God. That's really important. I want to break down why. He doesn't just claim like, I am God. He goes, I am the Son of God. He goes, and I can do nothing except through the Father. It's not only a submission in his humanity that he showed us how to honor the Father, but it shows in his, here his position that he is Son of God. And a lot of people want to disprove that Jesus was the Son of God. So you know what they do? They make the argument that he never stated it ever that he was the Son of God in Scripture. He goes, they, they say, he only ever said he was the son of man, which I'll get to it. He never said he was the son of God. Well, I don't know, you tell me. There's this moment when Jesus is being questioned of his divinity. Luke chapter 22, verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. Jesus is like, you buffoons. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, now here he says it, here it is. The Son of Man, remember this, how it's stated, will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I'm going to get to this in a second. Remember this. The Son of Man, this is a big moment, will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they said, they hear him say that, but then they go, no, 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 I'm going to ask you straight. Are you the Son of God then? 
And he said to them, yes, I am. Is he, did he claim, let, let's just, whether or not we can say yet, let's keep breaking it down. Did he claim that he was the son of God? Yes or no? Yes, I am. And I can break this down. It goes even deeper because when he goes, I am, that gets even heavier. Because in the Old Testament and the burning bush, when Moses was there, who do I say is sending me to set, set your people free? Tell them that I am ascending you. He wasn't just claiming to be the son of God. He said, I'm the son of man. I'm the son of God. And I am son of God. I, I would say that's a good case, but let's just break it down further, okay? Son of God. They would say, well, no, he, he, he said son of man. And, and people would try to go, well, son of God would refer to his divinity. Son of man would refer to his humanity. That's not true. You search the, the scriptures here, and you can see this expression, this, this phrase, son of man, that we just read in Luke 22. It's showing Jesus lifted high as the son of God. And, and this is why it was important. I think a lot of times, if we don't understand the historical context of why things were said, uh, it don't make any sense. So for us today, one day, people are going to look back on how stupid this generation is. And they're going to talk about it. And we're going to be in history books. Except before where it was like World War II and all that stuff, it's going to be like W. Riz and all this other stuff in the history books, right? But see, isn't there certain language that we use in this generation? Isn't there certain ways that we communicate in this generation that people understand what would be called like pop culture and all this stuff, like how we speak, how we dress, all of these different things? There was something in their culture too. See, the Jewish people knew when Jesus said, Son of Man, it wasn't talking about humanity. They knew the scriptures very well that in Daniel, the book of Daniel from the Old Testament, chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked. Oh, man. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, the Jewish people knew that Daniel 7 was a prophetic word. It's called a messianic prophecy. Messianic means Messiah. It's referring to the Messiah, the deliverer, the one who would come and set the people free. Daniel 7 is a messianic prophecy when it says son of man. Are you seeing how this is described? Coming on the clouds of heaven, approaching the ancient of days. Who is that? That is God who was and is and is to come. He has no beginning. He is the end and the beginning, the first and the last. He's approaching him. And Daniel 7, when Jesus even speaks, and, and you think about it in Luke chapter 22, the son of man seated at the right hand, the power of God. He's referring to Daniel 7 that the people understood. He's referencing here that he is the fulfillment of this. See, the Bible is full of what's referred to as messianic prophecies. It's full of them. The whole Old Testament is just trying to point to Jesus. If you think that Jesus just showed up in the book of Matthew in the New Testament, you're missing a whole lot of story. Jesus was around from the very beginning. And these prophecies are trying to point to the fact that his divinity is true. He is God. Let me put it in perspective for you. 
mathematically speaking, the statistical probability that people have worked out as they've, as they've dug into this, right? History and archaeology and, and, and Bible scholars and mathematicians, they've gotten together to figure this out. If one person could fulfill just eight messianic prophecies, if one person could do, do just eight of them, that is 10 to the 17th power probability of it happening just with one person. You understand that? 10 with 17 zeros after that is somebody been able to do that. It'd be the equivalent if you take a silver dollar. It's a good size. If you were to take 10 to the 17th power of these, that many of these, it would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. That's how many it is. You have reference? So we're going to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with these things. We're then going to take one. We're going to put a black X on it. We're going to drop it in the middle of Texas. I'm going to blindfold you. And I'm going to say, go now. You can take as long as you want. You can go wherever you want. And I need you to find that silver dollar. The probability of one person, they figured it out. Now, what's crazy about this is we're, we just talked about the historicity that the things in the Bible are proven. They're proven through history, archaeology. They're proven. So now when you begin to put math to it, one person doing eight, it's crazy that this is actually happening before our very eyes. You realize today we're seeing prophecies fulfilled before our very eyes that the Bible said was going to happen? Mathematical odds that these things would happen is very slim, yet God's word is true. 10 to the 17th power. If one man fulfills eight prophecies, you want to know how many Jesus filled? From the Old Testament, messianic prophecies spoken about someone that would come that was Jesus. He fulfilled 324 of them while he walked the earth. The statistical probability of one man doing eight is 10 to the 17th power. Jesus did 324 of them. The list goes on and on. I'll just give you a couple. It was prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem to a virgin. He was. That he'd be preceded by a messenger that would talk about him before he got there. John the Baptist showed up. That he'd enter Jerusalem on a donkey. He did. He'd be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Judas, Judas did that dirty deed. That he'd be executed by the piercing of his hands and feet, but his bones would not be broken. All of this just came to pass. So my question is this. If Jesus, they try to say, never claiming to be God, if Jesus isn't God, then why did the Jewish leaders kill him? Do you know why? Do you know what, what in their culture was deserving of death? Blasphemy. For blasphemy, you would be killed. The blasphemy in this case was claiming to be God. Why did they kill Jesus? They killed Jesus not only because we know that he is, but in their case, let's say they didn't know that, that he claimed to be God. Can we prove now historically and now with his divinity, Jesus lived, he is God. That is my evidence. You decide. Test number three, the crucifixion test. The crucifixion test. Very simple question. 
And it is really important for us to answer it. Did Jesus die? It's really important for you to be able to answer this question. The last two tests are the ones that people will try to their best contradict you on uh, or, or try to get you to contradict yourself or go in circles or they'll try to throw you red herrings so you, you don't even know what you're talking about anymore. They'll try to throw out what other religions have to say, which we're not going to get a lot. I'm just going to give you a little taste, okay, because uh, we're going to hear soon from Pastor Steve about why Christianity. We're going to talk about other religions, some of that stuff. But one of the things that you've got to realize when you're trying to decide, is Christianity the only religion? You're trying to decide, what do I believe in this case? What I want you to understand about other religions is they are going to have no problem with the historical Jesus. Most religions, if not all of them, are going to say we have no problem with the fact Jesus existed. We have no problem with the fact they'll say that he was a, a good moral teacher or he was a prophet. Some are even cool to say he was a miracle worker. He did good things for the poor or whatever. They will never debate you on that ever. You know the front they will debate you on? They will debate you on whether or not he is God. They do not believe his claim to be God. And specifically in the Islam religion, they will debate his crucifixion. That's their target. Why, why is that their target and not the empty tomb? Because if they can disprove the crucifixion, there never was a resurrection. And so they will focus their efforts on trying to disprove the crucified Jesus. And I just want you, you to know this, like, I, and I have no problem with people around the world hearing this. I get criticized for the clothes I wear, so I can't wait to hear what they have to say about what I say in terms of, of this. But Islam, love the people. Many of them are converting to Christianity because they're having dreams of this man, Jesus, as they sleep. Just saw literally on Instagram, my brother just sent me this video of this man weeping and Jesus speaking to him into a dream, in a dream, speaking to him. And he was asking, what is your name? And he goes, Jesus. And the man is just weeping, just completely left the Islam faith and he's following Jesus now as a Christian. But I need you to know, it is not a joke to mess around with. Islam is a wicked religion. It is a demonic religion. I just finished a book recently, and I, I didn't know much about it previously. And I'm not going to get into it a whole lot for the sake of time, but I didn't know a whole lot, and now I learned a whole lot about it. Even why some people would want to do it, like adhere to the guidelines and follow it, and they were raised in it, and this is what they knew. But this is what I've recognized. The entire effort that they have is to dismantle the Christian faith. Everything that they're taught, you know how we're teaching you apologetics? We're teaching you to defend your faith. They teach them how to dismantle the Christian faith. There's a difference. They literally equip them with arguments for how they can catch you as a Christian, a weak Christian, that you do not know your word because you don't read the Bible. You are not caked in the presence of God and full of the power of the Holy Spirit because you don't seek him that way. So you want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil himself? When you are going against someone in terms of another religion, especially we're talking about a Muslim that is coming against Christianity, if you ain't full with the power of the Holy Spirit, you're in big trouble because you're going toe-to-toe -to -toe with demonic activity demonic strongholds that's on people. 
And I love these people. These are confused people, and they need Jesus to rescue them from their sin, just like me. But I'm telling you, this is, the, a, this is a demonic religion. And their effort, they're going to look in a group. And I've been, I've done missions trips before, and I've talked to them. And I go, why did you specifically talk to that person? They go, we look for the weakest one of the bunch, and we pray on them. Do you know your Bible? Do you know God's word? See, it's, it's more than memorizing it. It's falling in love with it. If you don't fall in love with it, you'll never want to actually get to know what it says. Fall in love with getting to know about Jesus. But see, this religion, it, it wants to disprove the crucifixion. And so they got a couple different theories. One of them, they believe it's called the substitution theory. This is something they lean into real strong that we need to debunk. Is that Jesus was substituted from the cross before he was ever placed on it. So part of their, their proof that Jesus never died, he was never crucified, is that he never actually even made it to the cross. That's one of their big, one of their big theories that they lean into. And they, they apologetically will like argue this thought. Jesus never made it. Some of them, they actually will uh, they'll use this thought because what they're saying is, is Allah, which by the way, just so this is broken down, Allah is not the same God that I worship. Allah is not Jehovah. Allah is not Yahweh. Allah is not the Father. They'll try to tell you it's the same God. No, sorry, not the same God. We don't worship the same God. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not who you worship. We want to be clear about these things. Don't apologize for your faith. Don't apologize. Love people unconditionally and stand strong in what you believe. So this substitution theory that they, they hold to, though, is this basically thought Jesus never made it. He was substituted. And, and Allah basically changed the face of whoever was on the cross to make it look like Jesus of Nazareth. So that as he was crucified and died, it was never actually Jesus that did it. Which means, this is why it's important for you to understand, if his blood was never shed then you could never be forgiven of your sin. If it was somebody, see, if it was my blood, your blood, that's just blood. We're talking about the blood right now. We're talking about the blood that sets people free. One of their theories is that it was actually Judas that was on the cross. Judas, it was the body of Ju Judas, and Allah changed the face to Jesus. So it's Judas up there, but it's made it to look like Jesus, but uh, that ain't true. Because we just proved the historicity of the Bible that it's an authentic document. And Peter talked about this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, with payment we receive for his wickedness, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Look at, look at this. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. He's saying this was documented. Everybody knew that Judas did this. What did, Judas didn't die on a cross. Judas wasn't crucified. See, they called this the field, in, in, their, in their language, they called it a caldama, which means field of blood. Judas hung himself. All of the manuscripts provide documentation that this is how Judas died. He never went to a cross. Another theory that they have to disprove Jesus' crucifixion is called the swoon theory. 
The swoon theory very simply is the belief that Jesus did not die at his crucifixion. He didn't actually die when it says, when he said, it is finished. And the Bible says he, he took his last breath and Jesus gave up his spirit. He didn't actually die. He was unconscious is what they try to say. So unconscious Jesus, they're saying, is just passed on the cross. They took him off the cross. They put him in the tomb. And then he was resuscitated. He came back. He's like, what happened? Okay, can you roll that stone away? Uh, got to get out of here. Let me break this down for you. I want to describe the process of a historical Roman crucifixion. How about this? Deal. I'm just going to tell you the facts. Historically, you decide whether or not Jesus was unconscious of the, on the cross or whether he died. You tell me. I'm just going to read you the facts. Let's start with a Roman beating. We read different chapters in the Bible that describes Jesus being whipped, like, like uh, John 9, uh, 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And that's all that we read. And we're like, oh, okay, well, that was, that was not good, I guess, possibly. Do you understand medically what's taking place when it says that they took Jesus and had him flogged? See, the soldiers, they would use what's called a flagrum. A flagrum was a whip made specifically to rip skin off the body and cause excessive bleeding. Lee, Lee Strobel wrote this in The Case for Christ. He gave us a lot of insight. He said, after just a few lashes, the victim's skin, when they're being beat, uh, beaten and whipped, it began to come off in ribbons and their muscles tore. After a few more lashes, the muscles became like pulp. Arteries and veins were laid bare. Sometimes the flagrum would reach around the abdomen and the abdominal wall would give way, causing the victim's intestines to spill out. Obviously, many people died during the flogging alone. One physician who studied Roman beatings, he said this, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. A third century historian by the name of Eusebius, he described flogging saying that the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the, the very muscles, the sinews, which is like a cord in your body that connect a muscle to a bone, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. From this kind of torture, many people that went through the crucifixion process, they didn't even make it to the cross. They died before they got there. But Jesus had to go to the cross. Why? For me and for you, for us. He had to. He had to endure the worst torture, the greatest beating of a lifetime because he had to go to the cross for us. See, after the flogging, victims would be nailed to the crossbeam. They'd be nailed to this into their median nerve. It's the nerve that gives us the, the, the mobility with our hand and our wrists and our, our, our forearm here, and it's what allows us to function. And once it nailed into it, it would cause complete disability to move. It can't function anymore. When they would go to crucify someone to a cross, they'd take five to seven inch long nails, sharp on the end, they would drive it into the wrists. And what they would do is they would stretch out their arm 
drive it into the wrist, and then stretch it the other direction, Jesus' uh, body, his arms, would have been stretched at least six inches beyond its capacity, which means this. Both shoulders would have had to have been dislocated when he got on the cross. You know why they did that? They did it very strategically through the median nerve on purpose because now he cannot function with his, mus- with his muscles anymore. He can't move them. He's disabled. Now his shoulders are out of place. You've heard the, 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 the saying, right? Lift with your knees. All that was left was his legs. And the reason I say lift with your knees is because when he was on the cross, they would place him so that there was so much stress on his muscles and his, and, and his whole chest structure here in an exhale position. So look at this. See this? They would stretch him so his whole top part of his body was completely immobile now. They'd put him in an exhale position to start. So now he cannot use the upper body anymore. He has to push with his feet to get a breath. But see, the feet were nailed as well. And every time he pressed up on his feet, the nail would tear through his feet. Each time, and he came down, and he's hanging, he'd press up again, and it would tear more to the point it would get to, it's called the tarsal bone. It would lodge right here into the bone, and now the nail is up against the bone and pressing against it the entire crucifixion. This is documented historical Roman crucifixion. I, I can prove it. Let me give you some archaeology to verify crucifixion in the Bible. According to Dr. Alexander Metherol, in 1968, archaeologists in Jerusalem found the remains of about three dozen Jews who had died during the uprising against Rome. It's when the Jewish-Roman War took place in A.D. 70. One victim, whose name was apparently Yohanan, had been crucified. And sure enough, what did they find? A seven-inch nail still driven into his feet with small pieces of olive wood from the cross still attached. This was excellent archaeological confirmation of a key detail in the gospel's description of crucifixion. What does that mean? The same details that we now prove with the historicity of the Bible and the manuscripts that are described are also proven through archaeology and the findings of exactly what transpired. So after all of his energy is completely drained, right? Think about this. He's on the cross. He's pushing up. It's tearing through. He's taking a breath. He's down. He can't breathe. He has to pull up every time he wants to breathe. Think about this. How many of y'all, you can't even do one pull-up? Think about this. He has to do a pull-up every time. It's like like a reverse pull-up of the feet. Every time, it's like this. And when he could no longer do it, because his body was too exhausted, it was too tired to pull up anymore. Now, crucifixion was death by asphyxiation, which meant that finally you can't breathe anymore and you suffocate. That's how they would die on the cross. If they made it past the beatings, if they made it past all the torture, 
See, our Jesus, we read the, I'm just sticking to like the facts we can prove in history, but we know our Jesus wore a crown of thorns. The Bible says he was spit on, his beard was ripped out, he was hit across the face. It, it wasn't just the physical torture. How many of y'all, you feel kind of a little bit crappy when you know people don't like you? Imagine this many people, you know that they hate you. And you're going to the cross for them. They died by suffocation, not from just the brutality and the pain. And, and we know this because John, again, he's accurate. He documents it in, in chapter 19, verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during Sabbath. You didn't leave the bodies like that. Sabbath, you remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So they were going to go and crush all the legs of everybody. So they were dropped and they can no longer pick themselves up to breathe anymore. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus. And then those on the other. But when they came to Jesus, John wrote, because remember, why can John write this? Because John was the only disciple at the cross. He witnessed it with his own eyes. He writes this account and he says that when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. They did not break his legs. So the other two immediately, they drop, legs broken. <laughs> Done. They're about to die very quickly now. They can't pull themselves up to breathe anymore. But instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Just write this down. Blood and water. Two proofs that I want you to notice here from this thought, blood and water. Number one, we have to ask this question, why didn't they break Jesus' knees? Just to be sure. Jesus was the fulfillment of 324 messianic prophecies. One of those was that he would never have a broken bone was just fulfilled. And said they pierced him in his side. Number two, Dr. Alexander Metherall, he says this, that the spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart. So it's going up through the lung, into the heart. So that when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, the pericardial effusion, and the pleural effusion came out. Let me explain what that is. Pericardial effusion, it's the excess fluid built up around the sac around your heart. It's a bunch of fluid around your heart. The pleural effusion is a bunch of excess fluid in your lungs and chest cavity. So what does the Bible say here? It says that blood and water flowed. So when the spear came up through the lungs and into the heart, and pulled out the pericardial and pleural effusion, all the extra fluid flowed out. What could it have looked like as John described it? Water. It's medically proven that when blood and water flows from somebody's body, they're dead. You tell me, 
Did Jesus survive the cross? Was he merely unconscious and placed in the tomb? Or did he actually die? Just as these professional Roman killers intended for him to, and can I tell you, just as the Father intended him to. For God so loved the world that he had to give his son for us, and Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to do it for us. Let's speculate, though. That's why we're here. It's a little bit different type of setting and message and, and vision this year. Let's speculate. What if he did survive the cross? I want you to imagine this. Just imagine. Try to imagine you. Imagine that flag room coming around, ripping your body until the intestines are coming out, ripping your body until your bones are bleached by the sun, ripping your body until you're just so mangled. Then you're going to carry that beam all the way to Golgotha. It's what the hill he was killed on was called, the place of the skull. Imagine you're hanging up there, dislocated shoulders, bleeding from the wounds here. You're pulling yourself up. Okay, let's just say, let's, let's say that the swoon theory is true. Let's speculate here. It's true. He survived the cross. Let's speculate. You tell me then, if he survived, was he just walking around like this? Or is he barely making it as he comes off the cross? Let's just say he survived. Can we all say barely making it? Same page. He's barely making it. Are we on the same page? So now he shows himself to his followers for the first time. He just survived the cross. He never died. And when they see him, tell me, bloody, beaten, a completely broken vessel. Is that the image that invokes giving your entire life to start a movement like the world had never seen? Tell me, if that image, if he actually never died, and he was just unconscious, then he woke up, and he, he comes back, and he's just, he's a broken mess, barely, con you telling me that that's the image that makes you want to give your whole life and be completely transformed and never turn back and go all the way? you telling me that's the image of inspiration? Or was it that he had to die because if he didn't die, then he could never reveal himself in a new body to his disciples? Not just any new body. <laughs> a resurrected body. Are we ready for test number four? The resurrection test? See, this is, this right here is where we give the devil a KO punch right here. Because see, this right here is where the devil is enjoying a little too much the pain of Jesus. But we know working out the principle, no pain, no gain. I'll tell you, what was Jesus' pain? It has been our gain for almost 2,000 years. But it was proven. See, it was paid for on the cross. But it was proven through the empty tomb. See, he can say he forgives sins and pay for it in blood, but it's the resurrection test that we need to be true. Because if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then that means that this faith it is worth living for. 
I'll tell you, it's not just worth living for. Jesus is worth dying for if this, if this is true. Did he rise from the dead? That's the question. The resurrection test, can we prove it? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And I love this because Jesus as Lord made such outlandish statements that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's public announcement to everybody that saw him that everything he said was true. He is son of man. He is son of God. He is Lord. He was the one prophesied about. This was the resounding megaphone of heaven. As he comes out of the tomb, this is the truth unveiled in its fullest now. Because, see, he came out of the tomb in a resurrected body. And now when he comes back for us, it's going to be in all of his glory. He might have been lifted high on the cross in all of that pain and all of the perversion of the world with all of our sin upon him. But he'll become, when he comes back, he will be high and lifted up. And it's all because of the empty tomb. It's all because of the empty tomb. You know, Paul, the apostle Paul, he wrote in 1 Corinthians, uh, which is a really important historical document because it was written only 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you're wondering, oh, wow, that seems like a long time. That is very short time span between when it happened and when it was written historically. If you begin to go look at all the other historical documents, there's, way, there's hundreds of years sometimes before they're written. 20 years just 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul writes in chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. He said, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day. And I want you to catch this, this four words, according to the scriptures. See, some of you, you're, you're reading the Bible like it's like, uh, it's almost like you say you believe it and you say it's true, but you don't fully believe it's true. And I want you to look at that phrase, according to the scriptures. You know what that means? If the Bible says it, it's true. Because it's not just a living, breathing, spiritual book. It's a historically proven book that this stuff actually happened. So Paul is saying that Christ Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Dr. Gary Habermas, he's an American theologian. He was asked if it was true. He goes, let me, he, somebody asked me, is this true that there's absolutely no eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection? Is it true that there are no eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection? He goes, yeah, that's true. And right there, the person thinks, oh, I got him. He goes, why, why, why are you telling me that? Like, don't you think that if there's no eyewitnesses, that really hurts your credibility? That really hurts the reliability to make the, the resurrection a historically documented, accurate account? Something that actually happened in history? Don't you think that hurts your case? And he responds with this. He says, science is all about causes and effects. We don't see dinosaurs. 
we study the fossils. We not, may not know how disease originates, but we study its symptoms. Maybe nobody witnesses a crime, but police piece together the evidence after the fact. What are we doing here tonight? We are examining the evidence. Because Peter said, when he was speaking to all of them on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit filled the room in Acts chapter 2, in verse 32, Peter said, God has raised this Jesus to life. And what did he say? And we are all witnesses of it. Was there any witnesses at the moment Jesus was resurrected? Well, those soldiers ain't going to talk about it. I'll tell you that for sure. But there were six of them that the Bible documents that saw the empty tomb, that saw the fossil. Then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he is writing in accordance to what is said in Acts chapter 1. Anybody know Acts chapter 1, what it says? Jesus, he resurrects. How long did he stick around on planet earth before he ascended to the Father? 40 days. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Over the course of 40 days, how many people did he reveal himself to? Over 500 people. So in Acts 2, when Peter says, we are witnesses of this resurrected Jesus, over 500 people were witnesses. Six were witnesses of an empty tomb. Over 500 were witnesses of a resurrected Jesus. Still, people, they, they create arguments. There's one argument that says, well, it was, it was mass hallucination. Mass, this is an argument. You got to be prepared to know how to approach this. Mass hallucination. I have never heard of a hallucination where everybody sees the same exact thing. A hallucination is an individual account that you have. I mean, people have hallucinations. They might see like animals crawling up on the wall. People see like demonic things at times. Like people have hallucinations for sure. Think about this though. Whole group of people in the 70s hanging out at Jimi Hendrix concert. Doing some shrooms together. I can guarantee you they had some hallucinations. But they didn't all have the same hallucination. This, this argument is false because you can only have a hallucination as an individual. But what if the resurrection is just a made-up story? I just want to keep unpacking it. And just, it's like I want to tear it down before I build it up, right? What if, it, what if it's just a legend? For all of this to take place so quickly, Jesus resurrects. He, he appears to the sick, see the empty tomb. He appears to the disciples there in the room. He appears to Peter. He appears to like over 500 over the course of 40 days. I mean, this is quick. This has happened really. I've never heard of a legend that happens overnight. Legends are built over time. If this is not true, then why so quickly was this story put together? But let's just speculate. Let's say, let's call it a legend. If it's not true, if it's just a legend, go look this up. I want you to Google this when I'm done if you don't believe it. Actually, Google it anyways. It's good to start learning how to research this stuff on your own. 
If it's just a legend, then why did every single one of Jesus' disciples give their life following him? I want to be clear with this. It's not just they, well, they just gave their best and they worked really hard at following him and sharing who he was and then they died. No, every single one of them were killed for following Jesus. If this is just a made-up story, then why did every single one of them experience gruesome, torturous death, mauled by animals, like like stabbed to death, beheaded, burned a lot, like lot, like 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 they tried to burn uh, John in, in oil, and, and he's on the island of Patmos. We'll get into that book of Acts. Like we'll talk about it later, but it's crazy. You're, so you're telling me it's a legend then? then you're telling me they were lunatics enough to give their life to that point? Even secular historians have documented much, much accounts that persecution and death of Christians, which is called martyrdom, has actually happened in history. Christians over and over again have been beaten have been imprisoned, have been rejected. They've gone through the most gruesome of things to share the gospel of Jesus. Why would they risk their lives for a fraud? If this isn't true, why would they risk their lives? American philosopher J.P. Moreland, he said, apart from the resurrection, there is no good reason why skeptics like Paul, who was originally Saul of Tarsus that was killing Christians, and James, the brother of Jesus, James, the brother, his family didn't believe that he was who he says he was. Why would Paul and James be converted? And why would they have died for their faith? Look at this. Nobody willingly dies for a lie. Liars do not make good martyrs. People lie to get out of trouble. They don't lie to get into trouble. If this is all just a made-up story, if the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not for real, then why have so many people given their lives for it? Why? Why did the disciples, why did they give their life for it? Is it because they saw the resurrected Jesus? Thomas wasn't there when Jesus showed up, and they're like, hey, we just saw Jesus. It was crazy. And he's like, no way. I'll never believe it unless I can touch the nail holes in his hands and the and, and the the. The, the spot where the spear went in his side, the hole in his side, he goes, I won't believe it. And Jesus shows up in the room, and there's Thomas, and he sees him, and he touches it. And you know what Jesus said? He goes, blessed Thomas are those who believe, and they have not seen me. That's us here right now. Why, Jesus? I've given my life to preach this gospel. There's nothing more than Jesus. There's nothing more. There's nothing above him. There's nothing beside him. It's Jesus. This is the gospel. You know what gospel means, right? Good news. I'm not here to tell you bad news. I'm here to give you the good news. And I think when we talk about apologetics, many people think that our arguments are going to have to be bad news arguments. We are not trying to come against people and hate on people. We're trying to help people know the good news of Jesus. 
We want to help atheists know Jesus. We want to help Muslims know Jesus. We want to help people trapped in the cycle of homosexuality know Jesus. We want to help people tra- trapped in poverty cycles and, and, and like divorce cycles and alcoholism cycles come to know Jesus. This is good news for people. Apologetics is good news. It's not hitting people over the head with what they don't know or they believe the wrong way. It's sharing the good news of Jesus. But you got to know what that is if you're going to share it. Why, Jesus? There's nothing else, y'all. There is nothing else living for but Jesus. And I know some of you are still like making that decision because when you're young, you just think that there's so many things to live for. And there's so many things you haven't experienced yet. And there's so many things worth giving your life for. I've tried it. I've just tried it all. It's just, it, it's just not worth it. It doesn't add up to anything. The only thing that I've ever found to be consistent to give my entire life for has been Jesus. Why? Because I've put him to the test. And I've found that he is who he says he is that he came and did exactly what was prophesied he would. And the best part, do you know why I have faith in Jesus? Because living for a Jesus that just did all of this but left isn't worth very much. But living for a Jesus that did all of this has forgiven me of my sin. I know of eternity now in heaven and not in hell. Because very simply, you don't believe this, like wholeheartedly, you're all in. Not you came to collision. Not you go to church. Not you call yourself a Christian. Like you believe this heart and soul. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus resurrected from the tomb. Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit. You don't believe all of that? Very simply, you're going to hell. It's that cut and dry, simple. Well, how could God allow that to happen? Like, what about other people that they were born in another family, in another religion, or whatever it is? Come up here. I didn't plan this, but come up here. Come, come. Come, 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 come. Come, come. Run, 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 run. Come, 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 come. Run, 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 run. Give a hand from Nabil. Come, 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 come. I, I didn't plan it, but I'm feeling it. So before you were a Christian, give me just quick insight on what were you living for before that in terms of religion and and how you're raised a little bit and all that? Well, my mom's side was Catholic. My dad's side's Muslim. So obviously the father's side is going to take more priority. So just grew up as a Muslim. I learned about Christianity, went to Catholic school, but we were raised and taught that Catholicism is what's wrong, and that's why Muslims believe what they believe and why it is what it is. Okay, so you, up until how long ago, were a practicing Muslim? Two years ago. Because what are you now? A Christian. Okay. Just want to make sure that's true. Okay. So, I just want to make sure this is clear. You were a practicing Muslim. And simply because you did not make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life, you were going to hell. It's that simple. So some would say, how could God allow that to happen? Like, like, what if they were raised that way or whatever? Were you raised that way? Yes. So how did you come to know Jesus? Seeking and searching. Did anybody ever invite you to church? Eventually, yeah. 
Was anybody praying for you along the way? Yes. Was anybody probably doing some apologetics against you a little bit, trying to show you the way? They tried. <laughs> what clicked? Why Jesus? We didn't plan any of this, by the way. Like, I don't know what I was about to say. Make it good. This is going to be my sermon edit. I'm just joking. Why Jesus? The real experience was a Sunday service when my, heel, my back got healed. And then it was just like the visions, dreams, um, the overwhelming like, sense of like peace and just love. I don't care where you've been raised. I don't care how you've been raised. It doesn't matter what you've been taught. The Bible says that every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, it doesn't matter how you grew up, we missed the mark. We've sinned. Do you know what the call is on our life? The call on our life is to carry the good news. That ones like Nabil, like many in this world that are far off, but especially ones like him that were stubborn <laughs> and living in a very dark religion. We just continue to love him and pray for him and apologetically debate with him, I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> and he came to Jesus. You got a call and mission on your life. Don't tell me that people can't come to Jesus. Don't tell me that like God's leaving people out because they were born a certain way. He has sent us into the world to bring the good news. Anyone at any moment can accept Jesus. We just got to be ready and willing to talk about him, to know what we believe, to know who he is, and be able to share him. Oh, sheesh, man. Give a hand for Nabil. Get on your feet. We've put Jesus to the test tonight. He's okay with it as long as our faith is leaning into him. We've put him to the test. In my opinion, it was a lot of information, and you're probably going to need to listen to the message again because it was a lot, but I think he passed. Like for 31 years of my life, I've been trying to live like I know he passed. We put him to the test. So I think the only thing that's fair is that we're put to the test tonight. I think the only thing that's fair is that there's a test that each one of you have to do tonight. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and you're going to take a test. We're going to call this the heart test. The test of your heart. The test of your faith. Where are you with Jesus right now? Is he Lord? Is he Savior? Is he Son of God? I'm not here to put on a church camp for church kids. I'm not here to put on a church camp for people that just want to come and I don't know 
find some guy or girl. I'm not here to put it on just so that there can be some games. I'm here to put it on for heart transformation tonight. This is not behavior modification. This is not just a couple people saying, well, I'll just try to change a couple things about myself. This is heart transformation. This is some of y'all laying yourself completely down before Jesus and saying, you are the son of God. You are the one that was prophesied about. You are the risen Lord. You are king of my heart. You are the one that has all of me. I surrender all of me. You have all of me, Jesus. That is why we are here. We're here for some people in the room to get real with God because God is real. So if you're in the room, heads bowed, eyes closed, I want to be very specific. But Jesus is not Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe it's because you've been doubting what you believe. Maybe it's because you don't know if you want to fully go all in and, and like you've even been here before. Maybe you've even responded in some way before to Jesus, but come on, y'all. It's at a crossroad tonight. It's time to change. This is life and this is death. This is heaven and this is hell. It's, it's that simple. With Jesus, you have heaven. Why did he ascend to the Father? He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would not tell you. He said, trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus is working for us right now, y'all. He's getting ready. Even before some of you respond, he knows that he's getting ready and he's preparing a place because he knows that you're about to come right now. He knows that there's a plan on your life. He knows that heaven is waiting for you. And so he's just now waiting for you to step out. But the other reality I have to know, you to know, want you to know very clearly is that if heaven is real, and I believe it is because Jesus is, that means that hell is real as well. And hell, although it was created for demons and the devil himself, that was the intention of it. It will become a place. It is currently a place for people and it will become a place for those in the room that do not confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised from the dead. That is your destiny. Your destiny is not to be a star athlete. Your death, destiny is not to be an influencer on social media. Your destiny is not to be an artist. Your destiny is very simply heaven or hell. It's where you will be found one day. What you did in this life, it only matters if it's marked by Jesus. Everything else falls away. Everything. No matter how much money you make, no matter what you do in this life, it falls and it wastes away if it's not found in Jesus. So I want to give you an opportunity tonight with heads bowed, eyes closed. To get out of your seat and to bow your knee at this altar and make Jesus Lord of your life. So I'm going to make it simple for you. You can step out from where you are. You're going to come kneel and in your own words, it's very simple. You tell Jesus that you've sinned. You tell Jesus that you're in need of him. You tell Jesus you need his forgiveness. You tell Jesus that you believe in him. And just in your own words, there's no perfect way to do it. But I'm going to invite you. Are you ready? Come. If you're coming, let's go, my bro. Let's come right now. And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, it's time right now. 
to bow your knee and make Jesus Lord of your life. To say, I'm done messing around. I'm stuck. Some of you, listen, you need to confess this at the altar tonight before the Lord. I am done playing with atheistic thinking. I am done playing with other religions of the world. If Jesus is true, then I am ready to be a follower of him. I'm done playing with all these other philosophers and all this stuff on YouTube and all this stuff that's just getting inside my mind and it's warping it. Come on, young man. Come on, young woman. Get out of your seat. Bow your knee at this altar and confess Jesus as Lord. It's time. Don't wait on your friends. Because it's a decision between you and your friend whether or not they're going to heaven with Jesus. It's nothing to do with you. So why would you make it to be anything with them? Thank you, Jesus, for every single person that is responding to this moment. I ask for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to reign in this place. I ask for you, Lord, to begin to turn our heart towards you. This is a heart test tonight. Begin to turn our heart towards you, Jesus. Begin to convict us of the things in our lives that do not honor you, that do not serve you, that are not following you, the things that are distracting us, the things that are taking us far off track, the things that are making us live for just things of this life that don't matter. I ask for a heart transformation in the lives of people tonight. We call upon you tonight, Lord. You are Lord, you are Savior of our soul. And we love you tonight. And we honor you tonight. And we worship you tonight. And we glorify you tonight. Come on, because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's greatly to be praised. And he's worthy of it. Jesus, you're worthy of it. We honor you tonight. There's no one like you. Come on, just lift your voice. There's no one like you, Jesus. There's no one like you, Jesus. You're worthy of it all. You're worthy of everything I have to give and more. I could never repay you. I could never give you enough. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. Come on, lift your voice. Tell them.